for those who fish, this is the Drake Cast, a voice for fly fishing culture and conservation. He was tying feathers on a hook. I'll do a hopper with a hopper dropper with a dropper hopper. The river was like a woman. It could be a disco midge, it could be a bead head. I'm your host, Elliot Adler. We're just going to play the ads here because I don't want to interrupt the story. This episode of the Drake Cast is brought to you by the soft goods purveyors at Howler Brothers. We set out to do this thing to kind of make things that were off the beaten path. and we. That's Andy Stepanian, the co-founder of Howler Brothers. And he's about to tell us about the strange creatures and scenes that you can find embroidered on the breasts of their most well-known product, the Gaucho Snap Shirt. And these small collections that we do, we call them mutations. We've done Hula Girl, Constellation Pattern, Poseidon. The most out there one is probably Squirrels, which was a very, very limited run. Armadillos with roses, Largemouth Bass, Grasshoppers, Golden Frogs for Indie Fly, Blue Crabs. If you can think of a flora or fauna associated with fly fishing, surfing, or generally just having a good time, there's a good chance it's already been stitched onto a Howler Brothers product. If not, that just means they haven't released it yet. To see the latest mutations and check out the entire catalog, visit howlerbros.com. We're also sponsored by the artists at Scott Fly Rods. When I finally pulled the trigger and bought myself a Scott back in 2015, the first thing I noticed about it was that unlike my previous rods, my new Scott wasn't completely smooth. Another thing I really like about the Scott rods is that they're unsanded. They have little ridges on them. What I saw as an imperfection, Amy Hazel, the co-owner of Deschutes Angler Fly Shop, sees as an asset. The sanding can take off just millimeters too much. And so by not sanding, every rod that comes out is going to have the exact same strength. And I kind of know a little bit about that because we worked a lot with rod builders and we get sent a lot of prototype rods. And we'll cast that prototype rod that's unsanded and I'll go, yeah, this feels really great. And then they bring us the final product, which is then sanded, and it doesn't cast the same. And when that trout is sipping trichos just out from under the cut bank or that bass is right behind the submerged log, every millimeter counts. To try unsanded perfection for yourself, visit your local fly shop or scottflyrod.com. We're also sponsored by the adventure hosts at the Eleven Experience. To get a better sense of Eleven's fishing opportunities, I had Brian O'Keefe, whose official title is Angling Product Manager, do a rundown of their operations. I'll start from the northern hemisphere and work south. So Deplar Farm Lodge in Iceland, and that's Atlantic Salmon, Sea Run Brown Trout, Resident Brown Trout in Arctic Char. Heading south. Taylor River Lodge in the Gunnison Valley, great summer trout fishing. In the Caribbean, there are a couple of motherships for chasing redfish in Louisiana, then move up to the Everglades for tarpon, and then move up near the Keys for big tarpon. Not to mention their mothership in the Bahamas going after bonefish, just the most beautiful flats in the world. We ain't done yet. We're going to go to Patagonia, where we have Rio Palena Lodge. Where they use jet boats and helicopters. By being able to fly in and float out, we could access water that nobody really fishes. And 6,000 miles to the west in New Zealand. Cedar Lodge. Flyouts every day, the crystal clear water, the stocking trout, not stocked trout, of course, but stocking trout. <laughs> S-T-A-L-K, the fish of a lifetime, with the 11 experience. More info at E-L-E-V-E-N experience.com. 
Alrighty, on to the show. When the idea for this podcast was initially tossed around, we wanted it to be an extension of the Drake magazine. And one of the ways we envisioned doing so was by having the magazine contributors read their stories. Angling is physical geometry. The angler, the maker of angles, must solve math problems. He uses the compass of his rod, protracting with his cast to bisect the foam lines made by the curves of the river. The tighter the curve, the harder the problem. This is Andy Harris reading a segment from his essay, The Club, which appeared in the spring 2021 issue of the magazine. The story is about a young man fishing private water in the 80s, but I found it to be pretty timeless because it's about why we fish and the social capital that we place on and gain from our piscatorial pursuits. This is a question I know I've been asking myself a lot for the past few years. Alrighty, here is The Club, or as it was initially dubbed by the author, A Friday Night in May, performed by Andy Harris. If you're a total nerd, you can follow along with the latest issue of the Drake magazine and see the edits Tom By made to the original. Okay, here we go. I first fished on sand-bottomed creeks. This was in up north Michigan, where cold water glides around hardwood snags and beneath cedar vaults, which on the straight runs feel like nothing so much as a Christian canopy, arching and dark, a cloistered sanctuary. I began to think of rivers as holy places. They were silent and shadowed, yet light pierced their wooden tracery. Bars of hope fell through summer-stained glass into a quiet so complete it were as if the air itself had forgotten to exhale. Like religion, fishing was a contradiction. A ten-year-old boy did not know that word, but he did not need to. He felt it pressing down. Heavy timbers of discipline, commanding devotion, and then, in a flash, it sent him soaring when a fish would take the fly. Moments of elation to him and of deliverance from the preparation. Unlimbering the leader, stringing the rod, and trudging a mosquitoed path to a place where a fish might be, and then tying on the fly. The boy might make a hundred lonely casts along the soft grass bank, but then the ecstasy of the strike and the play, of bringing the trout to the net, and marveling at the jewel box of topaz, sapphire, and garnet spilled along its satin flank. Fishing was salvation beyond the life of school and chores. In those years, my father stood behind me, both of us on the bank above the shallows. He would sister his arm to mine, his hand on my hand, with his elbow gently pressing down, flattening my arm to my side. He instilled good habits from the start. He didn't use McLean's four-count rhythm, for a river runs through it had not been published yet, but the slow pulse of his casting motion, mostly wrist, with an echo from his elbow, was an effortless lyric. The conductor and the music and a slow baton tempo, a harmony of line and water. We fished mostly on a small spring creek, even though it was called the Little Sturgeon River. It was endlessly clear and after a storm, when the tannins from its banks washed in, the bottom sands glowed copper in the angles of the evening light. 
The stretch we fished was a sanctuary all its own, the Little Sturgeon Trout Club. It was private water. In the 1970s, when patronized by downstate auto executives and interlopers from Ohio, private water meant stocked water and water stocked to the point of fraudulence, which made it both the best and the worst place for a boy to learn fly fishing, among life's other essential lessons. It demanded he learn to cast. When he did, it paid him dividends that perhaps it should have locked away until he truly understood their value. Angling is physical geometry. The angler, the maker of angles, must solve math problems. He uses the compass of his rod, protracting with his cast to bisect the foam lines made by the curves of the river. The tighter the curve, the harder the problem. The little sturgeon is difficult mathematics. It arcs from bend to bend in what, from above, resembles a Baroque handwriting. The letters turn tightly upon themselves, as such water must when written on a geography scoured flat by glaciers, when it lacks the pull of gravity to inscribe straight lines. Tight curves make tight angles. Tight angles make difficult casts, and the club did not allow wade fishing, did not allow the angler to flatten the angle and simplify the math. Members cast only from the paths cut long ago amongst the trees and from small and calamitously maintained platforms jettied into the creek on planks and posts. As if somehow to level the playing field with the river, the caretakers occasionally cut back the thickest grass and trimmed aside limbs and brush in order to reduce casting snags. The far banks were another matter. They were choked and tangled, overhung with treachery. Like a backyard burn pile, deadfall stacked along their waterline. Such things require strict line discipline. So the club exacted a psychological collateral from the boy in the form of terror at snapped leaders and flies lost high on branches and down deep on sunken things. Wreck rigging was, of course, not the end of the earth, though it sometimes seemed exactly that to a boy who could not yet tie the surgeon's knot to repair a shattered line. And on the other hand, the Little Sturgeon Trout Club was something else, because it gave the boy a larcenous misperception of the world, that having graduated from his father's side, and on a hot afternoon with the sun overhead, when May and mayflies were weeks gone by, that he could place a size 8 atoms on a 2x leader into a tepid current along the bank and there steal a fish big enough to feed a family. He didn't know that had such a fish not just the week before been sluiced out of a hatchery tanker truck, it would otherwise keep itself vaulted beneath the black earth bank. He hadn't learned and would not learn on the same schedule as boys who came of age on wild rivers that feeding time for wild trout arrived at dusk when casting came by sound and catching as if by braille. He would imagine himself a better angler than he was. He could cast, but that did not mean that he could fish. So the club was a sort of easy street through fishing a city of hard knocks. 
The club took some measures to belie this disservice, and though it remained a willful lie, it really was a white lie, the type perhaps shared among fraternity brothers. Between the members, there was no harm done. For these men and for their families, the club remained a haven, a storied place of holy water and sacred lifelong dreams. The clubhouse was older then, and is now older still. It was built by hand and consecrated by a generation of men my father barely knew, when the last century really was quite young. Its walls and floors are hand-hewn, trimly laid around a stacked stone chimney. The logs are chinked with concrete, and that stone has yellowed now to the color of a bee comb. The building displays a sign above the door, hand-painted, black, and peeling off a worn cedar plank, the wigwam. A gently sloping porch fronts the wigwam, atop a high cut bank. You cannot see the water from it, but you can hear it shimmer. It vibrates up through beaches and cedars, and the porch is a cheerful place for a man to sit in a bent cane rocker and sip his whiskey. There are woodland smells and gross beaks at the feeder. He can swirl his cubes and contemplate the fish he did not catch. He can plot the demise of the ones he surely will the next time out. They will be big fish, of course, as long as the plank above the door. Trophy fish. Destined, like a very few and ever-precious others, for the walls inside the wigwam, displayed for all time beside the quarry of great men. Ancient men, like glaciers now gone by, but who fished with a quiet deliberation before themselves retreating. They had names from the hard scarp bottom of a creek. Rockwood, Selbach, Dagwell. In the corner of the porch hangs a wall-mount desk, just big enough to hold a notebook. It is unfinished but well-polished at the edges, lacquered with generations of sweat and fish slime. In the wall above the desk, two holes were hand-augured long ago, by tools themselves gone rusty now, abandoned to the bottom sediments of memory. The holes store ballpoint pens. Members use these pens to signify, at the beginning of each season, their names and state license numbers. They write these in a soft-bound book that is the only item on the desk. At the end of each day, or the next day, should he forget, a member admits the exact count of fish he has kept and the number he has returned to the cold spring waters. These in each of three columns. Rainbow, Brook, and Brown, themselves a trinity. Entries here are a matter of fact and record because the book is used in fish surveys and fish stocking plans and a few other things I know about now but did not care about then. When I was very small, the book seemed something divine. The entablature of a fishing man's worth, a scroll of the angling elect. But as I grew and began to misunderstand the craft, and not then for the last time, it became something else, and something perhaps pagan. The book became a way of keeping score. We grow, 
perceptions change. We acquire language and not just words, but the vocabulary of experience and character, and not, if we are lucky or too young, that of cynicism. For boys, fishing is simple and simply magic. The cast unspools, the line settles, the fly floats, the fish strikes, the boy sets, and all is right in the world. Fishing boys grow into fishermen, men who cast and catch with lesser words, not hollow words, because that is a cliché, and clichés are cartoons of meaning. Rather, words that have faded to bland memories of themselves, ideas no longer glowing with the forge fire that trembled us when we first reached for them with tender hands, like love and hope and fly fishing. In time, these feel like coins too long in circulation, worn flat and cold, the glint of their silver darkened. There is a moment in between. We have skill, but still also innocence. We feel sorcery in the cork when we set to the strike, because it happens faster than we can make our muscles fire, and almost before we notice. If we have started the craft young enough and with good teaching, we learn honor. We realize that fishing is not a game, and if there is any point to it at all, that point is certainly not winning. Yet grown men cheat, although I did not see it. That was the innocence, by which I suppose I mean blinded eyes. When I first saw the lie, I had no language for it. In high school summers, I fished most every day. I caught trout, or I did not. I always logged my numbers. On an early evening in mid-August, because the day had been too bright and hot, I came to see if I could find brown trout tucked in along the bank grass. I sat on the porch and tied on a moth, and then I signed the book. The entry above mine was that of a new club member. Mark Templeton had fished little, learned less, and had joined for reasons that had not much to do with angling, though very much with talking. His entry was incomplete. He was still out on the water, and this in frustrating conditions for a novice. On many days, the little sturgeon is childishly easy. But on some days, especially as the months swelter into August, and because sometimes we need a reminder of our frailty, it is devilishly hard. That is when the wind lays flat, and the air wrings out its sweat, as if the whole season has leaned in from above to press its weight down with a choking, wet-wool anguish. The trout retreat to the dark wood bin at the bottom of the river, and we throw our lines in frivolous bad humor. On this evening, I fished until well past sunset. It was barren water and revealed nothing for my effort. Night came. It dragged rain clouds across the moon, and so I climbed the steep old wooden treads from the stream and then the two steps to the clubhouse porch. The parking lot was empty, and there was far-off thunder. 
I was alone with my self-doubt. I went to sign the book, and there, in a page otherwise coded in futility, Mark Templeton had recorded a bag limit, or nearly. Nine fish of the ten the club allowed as a daily take. I etched my sober zeros across the columns. On the stream, we honor our haplessness, even in a thrashing by a novice. At the car, I broke down my rod and the rain began. I laid the sections in and sat behind the wheel. Heavy drops stuttered off the roof, jazz sticks on a hi-hat. I think I was thinking of an auburn-haired girl with perfect skin and a smile as glorious as any dream I've ever had. I don't know that I was, but I still sometimes do. That memory fades into the sound of the engine turning over and wipers turning on to slap aside rainwater. And then the storm came stronger, pouring out great buckets. I rolled on the lights. I drove along the club's loamy, empty two-track. At the pipe rail gate, I turned toward the lake and then down toward our house at the beach. Up north, storms can blow out quickly. This one did. The wind gentled in behind it and freshened off the lake, enough now just to push the rain aside, enough to move the pine boughs that made shadow casts into the puddles of the streetlight lamp. I parked the car as the clouds pressed out the last dollops of Lake Michigan water and walked across the patio to the porch, where my father sat, where Bob sat, where they sat and drank their whiskeys. They were college roommates and best friends on the river. How were your fish? asked my father. It was his question, always his question, when I came in off the water. What fish, I said. Uncooperative, said Bob kindly. Well, good fish will do that now and then. Good fish are good for the soul. Yeah, I said, maybe. I was unconvinced that leaving fish in the stream improved my moral posture. I got skunked, I said, and paused, but, but Mr. Templeton didn't. The statement died in silence. Smashed him, did he? My father finally managed. I guess, I mean, the book said so. What did it say? Nine fish, I said. Nine, said Bob. He raised a brow. My father made a hard chortle. What horseshit? His drink had thinned. He set it down. Mark Templeton lies easier than a dog licks his balls. My father had the patience of the priest he had once been. Life demanded tolerance, he said. But angling was as rule-bound as geometry. In its brutality it still requires respect for the fish. In the telling, it still requires truth. Eighty degrees, he said, on an August night, and Templeton says he takes nine fish on a dropping barometer? It's so much horseshit. I turned to Bob, who had pursed his lips. He looked off past the pines to the lake, as if answers might be out there, 
drifting on the water. Full of it, I said to Bob's tired gaze when he had retrieved it from the dark. He seemed to be thinking about simpler times. Finally, he said, This man Templeton has demonstrated a habit of prevarication. Prevarication? I said. Yes, outlandish prevarication, and sometimes outright lies. Blue-blooded, a grandson of the president, Rudolph Bob Garfield was gray at the temples and patrician. Not given to coarse language, he shared sacred values with my father. One was truth, and another was integrity. A third was the wisdom of Mark Twain, and they held holy that too much of anything was bad, but in the evening by the lake, that too much good whiskey was barely enough. Bob swirled his bourbon and held it to the soft lamplight. Full to the gill plates, he mused, studying the amber liquid. I didn't understand. So, the log, the book, it, it isn't really a record. My father pulled his scotch dry and sighed. He fixed me with his eyes, his light sapphire eyes that tonight had an edge of blue gas fire. If you let them, wise men will let you learn from silence. I listened, but all I heard was rain in the gutters. At last Bob said, The record is not likely true. My father gave a soft shoulder roll. It might have been a shrug, but it seemed to come from someplace deeper, from near wherever the soul resides. I looked from man to man. They looked at each other, and then each one at me. It has, upon occasion, Bob said, been called the Book of Lies. <laughs> the Book of Lies, said my father. He seemed to have the grim satisfaction of a man who has seen a vigilante beating. He asked, Did you record your number? I always do, I said, even when it's zero. My father did not hesitate, especially when it is zero. There is a place not far from my home in Bozeman, yet closer still to a rainy night in Michigan nearly 40 years ago, where I learned to cast the western waters. It was later that same summer. I don't recall what I thought then, standing on broad fans of cobble on the inside bends of the Gallatin River. What does any boy think, watching a fly ride foam lines above gentle trenches of green water? The spot is near the confluence with the Taylor Fork, across the state road from a wooden fence, split by a wooden gate with a hand-hewn wooden sign on what just might be a plank of cedar, Elkhorn Ranch. Scree lines tumble down from the pine-top ridge there in shoots that carry avalanche snows in winter. It's a perfect backdrop for a boy to learn to cast caddis for cream-bellied rainbows and slicks behind the pocket rocks. Further upriver, around a bend, and past a spring that flows bridal white down the hillside, the Gallatin Canyon opens to a valley bottom.
The valley is upholstered there with willow meadows and sagebrush clusters and wide, riffled river braids, and with my recollections of that summer. A horseback pack trip into the true backlands of Yellowstone National Park, the first cutthroat I ever caught beneath a high rock overhang above the knee-deep water, cowboy tails around the evening fire, and sap popping in the pine logs as embers traced orange echoes in the night. I went fishing there this evening. I do that when I miss my father. The river ran muddy even in the riffles, so I set down my rod and sat on the bank and gave the time to doing nothing. The evening was breathtaking and beautiful and remote from the worries we gather as we age. Drizzle blurred the edges of the alpine light. A rainbow laced into the Douglas fir that topped a black butte to the south. I tried to imagine what this place had been when fish had first found their way here so many years ago. Not very different, I expect. Two lanes of blacktop split the valley now, ribboning off toward Wyoming. But they could just as well be a buckboard wagon trail, empty as they are, on a Friday night in May. I leaned against a rock. The air seemed to vibrate with a golden, soul-filled silence. I looked across the river at a brown tremor along the bank. A beaver. She was working in the shallows. She pulled willow saplings from the slurry of bank mud and high water, loosening them with her big chisel teeth, and then slowly working them free. A few raindrops pattered on my lap, and a few more on my gear. The beaver slumped from the bank to the soft belly of the current and dunked the root wad, turning it over and over with her tiny front paw fingers. She rinsed away the silt with a gentle sweetness. I do not think I could have imagined anything else so delicate in nature. When I was very young, and then again some years later, my family vacationed at Montana dude ranches. My earliest memory of the West is of thunderstorms. They would build in the afternoon and then deluge the hills and forage fields in a crash of cannon glory. For a little boy, it always ended too soon, but also before I got scared. The aftermath was majesty. The sun would break through and glisten in the tears on the bent meadow grasses, on the tips of pale prairie sedges. Then, all at once, as if the earth had exhaled in delight, the mint and crushed camphor of the sagebrush would rise and laugh and swirl, warmed and wet, yet also comforting, and I felt a swaddle blanket wrap around my soul. I looked again across the water. The beaver worked the shallows. The drizzle stopped and left behind a mist. The mist settled in the pine forest on the slope above the valley, and then the sun broke through and dappled my face and caressed the sage and I smelled the smell of youth rising on the breeze. It reeled me up and hauled me back across wide western teenage meadows to childhood spring creeks 
and then cast me forward again, and I settled like thistledown on the calm water of an evening in Montana. There you have it. September will bring some sort of story about trout or bass. Haven't quite decided which one yet. If you want to read other stories of this caliber, make sure to subscribe to The Drake. $40 for the year. Every single one of us could benefit from less time spent on our phones. Let a print magazine help you do so. If you like this type of thing, make sure to check out episode number 52, Mosquitoes and Char, as well as the bonus episode titled Dancing with Death on the Bighorn. Both feature Drake writers reading their work, with some over-the-top background music and noises, for which I apologize. It was a different time, and I like to think that I've grown since then. Thanks to The Eleven Experience, Scott Flyrods, and Howler Brothers for making this episode possible. If you like the show, give them some of your money and tell them we sent you. If you don't have any money, go on to iTunes, leave us a review.